Thanks, JT and team. Thank you, Ben and Liz, too, for uh, leading us through that. Um, while Ben and Liz and Emily were uh, sharing, uh, my mind wandered as it's prone to do. Um, but at least this time it did wander through the Bible. Um, and I, I was reminded of First Peter. Um, Peter begins this epistle. I'll, I'll bring this back in just a second. Trust me. Um, so he begins by writing to those elect exiles, he says, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And then he goes on at the end of this opening section of First Peter. He's talking about the, the salvation that has come through Christ. And here's what he says in verse 10 of First Peter chapter 1. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and its subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven and then he says, things into which angels long to look. So, yeah, angels are fearsome creatures, like Ben said, as they read those passages of Scripture. They're not cuddly little cherubs that we want to set up on the mantle. But one of the things that Peter tells us about angels is if you can envision the throngs of people in normal times that look over from a stadium onto the field where the contest is being played, all right? They look down and they, they look over. It's almost like someone's on the top looking over the rail, looking down on the court as the basketball game's being played or as the whatever it may be. And the picture here is that angels are leaning over, looking into what God is doing through the gospel here on this earth. They're, they're looking into this amazing thing. And, and I believe angels like God are not restrained by time. And so they see what God has done, is doing, and will do, and are just amazed at his grace. And I think that's the purpose of the genealogy that we've been reading in the first chapter of Matthew, is to just be amazed at what is going on. It's more than just a list of names. It's not Jesus' family tree alone. It is a picture of God's work in redemptive history. And I believe a picture of, of God's work today and what he will do then, now, and, and to come. And it's not, just, it's not just a list of names that we can't pronounce. Oh, it is that. But it's, it's more than that. Um, and so, you know, as we've been spending three weeks now in this opening chapter of Matthew and we'll we'll do this will be the third week and we'll look at it next Sunday the Sunday after Christmas um, and as we look at this you know I've been kind of reminding us that I believe God created us as human beings made in his image with a longing there's 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 hunger in our heart that only he can satisfy all right now we'll try anything and everything under the sun right but only he can satisfy it. And we long, we long to be a part of a family. We, want, we long to belong, okay? We want to, we want to be, be known as someone who belongs to a family. 
And, and we saw that in his promise to Abraham, that through Abraham, all families of the, all the nations of the world would be blessed, if you will. That through Christ, we're adopted into his family and we have that longing met. We, we saw that in his promise to David, that David would always have a descendant on the throne. And we've been singing about the kingdom of God. Well, that kingdom has a king. And it's not King David, it's King Jesus. And we long to be shepherded and led by a leader who's going to care for us and demonstrate the care for us in caring for us in a, in a sacrificial way. And Jesus does that for us. We long to be at home. We long to be where we belong, all right? And, and throughout the scriptures, as we're going to see today, there's a theme of being exiles, all right? Being in a place that's not home. It, it happened to David, as we saw. It happened to Jesus during his time on this earth. And, and that's the case with us as God's people. That's the case with us as followers of Christ. We are not there yet. This is not home, and, and we'll see that today in the passage. Um, so let's, let's look back at Matthew chapter 1, all right? And just remember as we read this again, that this is a picture of God who keeps his promises, fulfills his purpose, and does it in ways and through people that the angels are looking over going, wow, and he wants us to do the same thing. Just go, wow, it's amazing that God does this, and he does it the way he does. It's just amazing. So, Matthew 1, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read it again. The book of the genealogy, remember, genealogy is the word Genesis, okay? The beginning of Jesus Christ. This is his earthly beginning for us. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. So this genealogy, I'm going to pause just a second, is divided into three parts, three 14-generation segments. And we saw in the first week that those numbers are important. They have to do with Hebrew numerology, and they reflect back on the very name of David. And this first section of Hebrew history, this first section in the genealogy of Jesus, takes us from... Abraham to David, all right? So this is the beginning and the building up of the kingdom that's known as Israel and Judah. The building up of God's people in this nation of Israel, all right? And so it's, it's just that. It's the building up, moving up, if you will, if you're looking at it in a diagram. They're just moving up. Things are progressing. It's the age of the patriarchs, Abraham and his descendants. It, it's, it's the age of a lot of names that we're familiar with. As we read back through that, we we recognize some of these names. They're not as strange to us as others. So it picks up. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So the second 14, the second section there, then takes us from David. So, so picture this, the kingdom is really reaching its apex, all right? This is the height of the fame and the reach of Israel, of, of this nation. The reign of King David and the reign of his son Solomon sees them at the top, all right? And they are one of the great kingdoms of that ancient era. But things start kind of sliding down, all right? There's a digression, okay? From And we know this, from Solomon on, then the kingdom gets divided and it goes downhill from there. And Matthew tells us it goes downhill to the point that God judges his people and turns them over to the kingdom of Babylon. And it picks up in verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliud, and Iliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar was the father of Methan, Methan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And we'll, we'll get to verse 18 uh, toward the end of the message. So here's that picture. First time, the first section, that first season, if you will, of that reign or that kingdom is, is moving from Abraham to David. It gets to the pinnacle in, in David and in Solomon, and then it begins to decline. And then in this third period, there's a lot of names here that this is the only place you find them. Names we've never heard of and never will again if you don't read Matthew chapter 1. Who in the world are these people? And, and we don't know much about many of these names. But all of this is reminding us of God's faithfulness, of God's grace, and God's power. All right? Keep those three things in mind. God's faithfulness, His grace, and His power. And that's why the genealogy of Matthew is given for us. That's why all the genealogies in the Bible are there. They're not just names. They're a record of the work of God. Okay? So, Matthew begins this genealogy with this reminder of God's faithfulness. Faithfulness over the centuries, faithfulness through people that we would go, what a loser. We would. I mean, if we looked at some of these people outside of the context of Scripture, God promised to form a new nation. So he's going to pick someone young and virulent and ready to roll with that. No. He picks a man and a woman just knocking on a hundred years old. And that's who he chooses to make a nation from, a new family, a new covenant people. And he promises to give them an inheritance, a land that is theirs, a home that is theirs. 
And he promises that he's going to work through them to bring about blessing to the rest of the world. And as we read the Old Testament, we go, this is a train wreck. What in the world? We see a new nation formed and then we see it rebel and then we see it splinter. We see this new nation brought into this land that's their own, this promised land. And God had warned them before they came in. Be careful when you get into this land. This is my paraphrase. You're going to come into a land that, that it's not yours. You didn't do anything to, to earn it. I gave it to you. And it's a wealthy land. It's well provided for. Be careful that your hearts don't get turned there. And their hearts got turned there. And, and this land, and they were to be a blessing, and they weren't a blessing in this picture that we have in the Old Testament. But God is faithful, right? Through the ups and the downs. And that's, that's just a simple application of this. God's faithfulness has not changed, church. His faithfulness has not changed from what we see transpiring in these names and in these events that's recorded for us in gospel in the first chapter of Matthew. And and his faithfulness doesn't change today. I'll, I'll build on that a little bit as we go. Okay, so it's a genealogy that reminds us of God's faithfulness. It's also a genealogy that reminds us of God's grace. Did you recognize some of those names that I read? And probably some of those names as they came to your mind were not pretty pictures they shouldn't have been because there's pictures in here of of sexual immorality. There's pictures in here of rebellion. There's pictures in here of liars and deceivers and cheats. Oh, yeah, there's a few pictures of righteousness and integrity. But there's pictures of those who are cowards right after a picture of a hero. And there's pictures in here of those who rebel right after the picture of those who walked faithfully with God. And I'm just reminded as I read these names and look through this of God's grace, right? What did Abraham do to, to, to earn being chosen by God? Nothing. Nothing. What had Moses done? Nothing. What have you and I done to be chosen by God? Nothing. Nothing. And that's the picture of this grace over and over. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. The wife of Uriah, she's not even named in Matthew's genealogy, but it's Bathsheba. So there's grace extended. Scholars marvel at the fact that Matthew includes so many women in his genealogy because women were just not included in genealogies in the Jewish tradition. They were ignored. But yet grace is extended and they're mentioned here. And some of them admirably so, okay? Admirably. Gentiles are mentioned here. In the genealogy of Jesus. And what's mentioned here are these just contrasting back and forth and back and forth between the the good and the bad, the faithful and the unfaithful, the liars and the truth tellers. All of those God used. I mentioned Manasseh last week. All right. And I was reminded this week as I was thinking through this again and just working through this. this, I read this, but listen to it again. Manasseh is listed in Jesus' family tree. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. I'm in 2 Kings chapter 21. In verse 3, he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. Those are centers of idolatry, okay? Those high places. Those aren't good things. 
Hezekiah had torn them down. Manasseh rebuilt them. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, the king of Israel, had done and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Verse 4 says he built altars in the house of the Lord. Okay, so he went into church and built these altars to these idols and these pagan gods. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. And used fortune telling and omens and dealt with the mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And yet, yet, if you go into Second Chronicles... And read the record in there of what happened with Manasseh and his family. You read this in Second Chronicles chapter 33, starting in verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. And you could ditto that all the way down through this family tree. Therefore, in verse 11, the Lord brought them, excuse me, brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he, Manasseh, was in distress, he entreated the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Now that sentence alone is amazing. He entreated the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself. He prayed to him, it says in verse 13, And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Is that grace? Yeah. Amen. I mean, he had offered his son in the fire as a sacrifice to the pagan gods. And God heard his entreaty. This family tree is a picture of God's grace. Okay. Just constantly remind ourselves of that, that we serve King Jesus, who is the king of grace. Right. And that grace is poured out over and over and over throughout the recorded history that we have here in the scriptures. And, and even even with someone like Solomon, who we see at the pinnacle of, of the nation of Israel, and then it begins just to digress slowly, slowly, sometimes a little more quickly, a little more quickly. We see Good godly men like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah. And then we see their sons who did evil in the sight of the Lord, it tells us. And that's the most amazing understatement. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. This genealogy shows us the faithfulness of God and the grace of God, church. Stand on it. Stand on it. It also shows us the power of God. I want us to look for a minute at that third section of this genealogy. All right. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Methan, Methan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. I have no idea who most of those guys are. Because this is all it says in the Bible about them. They're just here. Okay. And this third period from from the captivity to Jesus 
is one of darkness for the most part in the nation of Israel. We, we don't know about a lot of this period of time. All right. These are obscure names. Living obscure lives. And other than the fact that they're listed in this family tree, we have no idea who they are. All we know is their name. Now, that's not exactly the case with all of them. But in this dark period of Israel's history, the hand of God was against his people. Judgment, deportation, exile. And yet the hand of God was also extending grace and working. So even in this exile, even in this darkness, it's not completely dark. And I believe that this is a good thing for us to think about for a minute when we think about this whole idea of exile, this idea of not being home yet, and God's intentions and the, and the picture of his power working on behalf of his people to bring them home. And that's what exile is, right? It's just simply not being at home. Being in a land that is not home. Being among people that are not family, if you will. Being in a place that's strange. And, and where does it start in the Bible? Hmm? It starts with Adam and Eve, right? They rebel against their king. They rebel against God. And he puts them in exile. And puts an angel at the gate of the garden to prevent them from coming home. And from then on, this picture of exile is there in the scriptures. This picture of being away from God. This picture of being away from that place that we love. And thats it's a picture of the gospel. All of this is a picture of the gospel. A king who loves us and creates for us this paradise. Our rebellion against that king. And his promise there in Genesis to crush the head of the one who deceives. To crush the head of the serpent. And to bring us eventually home again under the reign of that good king. Bring us back into that place of promise. that That's the gospel, right? That's the gospel. That's this picture of what he's doing. He wants to bring us home. And that's what, the, that's what this Christmas story is about. It's about God seeing his people in pain, seeing them in darkness, seeing them away from home, seeing their hopelessness, and his refusal for us to stay there. And his refusal not only to, for us not to stay there, but to come to us where we are in our exile and darkness and rescue us out. He doesn't send, you know, a committee. He doesn't send a spaceship and zoom us up and take us off. He comes as a baby, a cuddling, crying, bedwetting baby. Who is fully human and fully God. And that is the power of God on display to bring us out of exile and bring us home. So Matthew follows this this royal line. There's one name here I want us to look at for just a second. okay? and he's actually mentioned twice and it messes us up in the numbers. But so there's this name mentioned there in verse 11. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah is mentioned again as the father of Shealtiel. All right. So there's this Jeconiah guy. And if you do research on him, which I've been doing this week, it seems like the more I research it, the more confused I got. Which can happen with some of these names. Because Jeconiah is known in other places as Coniah. 
He's known in other places as Jehoiachin. But scholars say, well, that's the same person, all right? And he's referred to in the book of Jeremiah as Coniah. And some scholars say, well, that's a nickname to show his disrepute. Just to show what an evil person he was. Jeremiah didn't even want to call him by his full name. But there's a verse that, as I was studying this week, created an issue. It created a problem with this genealogy. It's in Jeremiah chapter 22, and I'll just read it to you. God is pronouncing judgment on Jeconiah and his family. And he's referred to as Coniah in this passage. But here's what Jeremiah says in, in starting in verse 29. Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. So this is a big deal. God is calling the earth three times to come and hear this pronouncement of judgment that he gives. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. A man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So God announces a judgment on Jeconiah. Some scholars would say God announced a judgment that he would be childless, no children. But that can't be the case because later on in the Old Testament, children are listed as his descendants. But what can be the case and what I believe is the case is what what the prophet said. Write this man down as a as a man whose children will not succeed in his days. None of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So none of his children would ever sit on the throne of David, right? That's, that's the way I understand that. That's the way I read that. So here's the problem. He's listed in Jesus' family tree in Matthew. What's up with that? A man who had been cursed and told that none of his children would sit on the throne of David is listed in Jesus' genealogy as one of his ancestors in the line of David. And, and we could take a long time. Well, we, we couldn't take a long time under my teaching because I don't know that much to tell you about it. And I've, I've really worked hard on this this week. And sometimes, even, even early this morning, I thought, I'm no closer to understanding this than I was a week ago. Okay? Um, but I do understand that if Jesus had been the blood son of Joseph, his father, he could not have taken the throne of David according to this curse. But he wasn't the blood son of Joseph. Right. Joseph was his adopted father. Jesus was Joseph's adopted son. Both genealogies in Matthew and in Luke tell us that. So he was the legal son of David, but not the blood son of David. Do you understand that? And I think that's what. So God had to come up with a plan that this descendant of David would be. The heir to the throne, legally and lineally. And he did come up with that plan. And it's amazing. It's amazing. So I think he did it by the virgin birth. I think that was God's answer to this little conundrum that this dumb preacher is having such a hard time figuring out. 
And I think it makes perfect sense because this genealogy begins with a supernatural birth, right? Isaac, supernaturally, if you will, born to Abraham and Sarah. And there's another supernatural birth at the end of it. Not through a man and a woman, though. Matthew says this in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, he was found to be with child. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I really appreciated Ben and Liz reading both of these passages. Because then the angel comes to Mary and tells her a similar Announcement: The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. In Genesis, in, in the first chapter, it tells us that the Spirit of God was hovering over that darkness, hovering over the waters. And that same idea is here. The Spirit of God coming and hovering over this young virgin girl and bringing about life in a supernatural way. So I believe that what we have here, and if you follow Mary's genealogy, she also goes back to David. But listen, she doesn't go back to Solomon. That genealogy doesn't go back to Solomon. Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham and works its way down to Jesus. Luke's genealogy starts with Jesus and works its way up all the way back to Adam. But if you read in the middle of that genealogy, when it gets to that descendant of David that Jesus is related to, it's not his other son, Solomon, it's his firstborn, Nathan. So Mary was related. She's a part of the bloodline of David, just as Joseph was. Okay? They're they're in some way cousins, all right? Some of us folks from the mountains understand that better than some of you do, but I'm just, I'm just saying. That's how this problem kind of gets solved in some ways, all right? God's amazing in the way he works this out. But this question of how, how God did this, I believe, takes us. And this isn't a, a, a sermon on the virgin birth. I've preached those before, and, and I would encourage you to, to really study that and see why it is such a big deal. It is huge. The gospel hangs on it. All right? The gospel hangs on it. You don't... I'm going to be careful how I say this. There's a lot of doctrinal truths in the Bible that you don't necessarily have to understand and believe to be saved. Right? You don't don't have to understand all of these things to be saved. That's pretty simple. Children can grasp it, all right? God created me to know me and to love me. God created me to have a relationship with him, and I rebelled against that. I sinned against that, as have all human beings. And rather than God punishing me for that, he gives the opportunity for rebels like me to be saved, to have that sin atoned for and taken care of, not by punishment I take, but the punishment that he places on someone as a substitute. And that substitute is himself. As he comes wrapped in human flesh in Christ and goes to the bloody cross taking the punishment I deserve. And I get life and Jesus died, but he came back from the tomb, right? And in that, God sealed and confirmed that Jesus is who he says he is, who the Bible says he is. That's fairly straightforward and simple. Now, when I say that Jesus was born of a virgin, everything within us goes, what? I don't get that. I don't understand how that happened. And you don't have to understand how it happened to come to faith in Jesus and believe in him. 
But I will say this, that if the virgin truth, the virgin birth is not true, then Jesus is not sinless. And if Jesus is not sinless, he is not a savior. And if Jesus is not a savior, we are lost. We are lost. And that truth is so critical to this. Millard Erickson puts it this way in his systematic theology. If we do not hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible. And there is, in principle, no reason why we should hold to any of its other teachings. Thus, rejecting the virgin birth has implications reaching far beyond the doctrine itself. If the virgin birth is untrue, who was Jesus' daddy? And if that answer is any other man, any other human being, then this whole understanding of the sin nature that we inherit because of our ascendancy, or excuse me, of, of the descendancy that we have coming from Adam, that first rebel, then that sin nature that passes on through humanity, it wasn't broken with Jesus. There's no place where that was disconnected if he had a human father. And the virgin birth explains how Jesus could be both fully God and fully man. He was without sin, right? And so he's the only spotless lamb. Otherwise, he's not a satisfactory substitute. So Al Mohler puts it this way. The truthfulness of the virgin birth, therefore, creates a moral obligation in other words, because Scripture affirms the virgin birth, then it is true. And if it is true, then it must be believed. To deny the virgin birth, despite the fact that the Gospels assert it, would compromise the authority of the Scripture. He says the same thing Millard Erickson says. And Christians don't have a choice to accept or reject the truth of Scripture. Scripture exercises authority over the Christian, and he or she must accept that's truth, that truth. That's what we saw in Psalm 119. It is the Word of God. And we can't. Pick and choose and cherry pick what we're going to believe and what we're going to reject. Certainly we don't understand it all, but we can't dismiss it. And so this time of the year, if it hasn't already been out there, you'll see it in the grocery stores you're checking out. Might be on Time, might be on Newsweek, might be on something else, but there'll be a front page article about the virgin birth. Happens every year. One of my favorite columnists with the New York Times... Is a guy named Nicholas Kristof. I, I really like his writing. And he professes to be a Christian. And yet, and he did it this year like he did last year. Last year he, he, he interviewed Philip Yancey. And, and, and he begins with a question about the virgin birth. And he questions Philip Yancey about the miracles in the Bible, about the miracles in the New Testament, and about the virgin birth. And here's the question that he ended that interview with and the one that he did this past week with someone. Here's how he ends all of his interviews at Christmas time. He says, I have a final question to ask you. I consider myself a Christian, for I admire Jesus' teachings, but I doubt the virgin birth, the resurrection, and other miracles. And he says, it does seem complicated to be a Christian who questions the resurrection. No, duh. <laughs> but then he asked, he asked Yancey, he asked this week, so am I a Christian? 
Now, I love what Philip Yancey did in that interview last year. He turned it back. In fact, he said, I'm going to turn it back on you and say, are you a follower of Jesus? Great question, okay? That's a great question for our conversations when we're talking to someone about faith in Christ. Oh, I, you know, I'm a member down there at that church. I have been all my life. I was born and raised in that church. Fine. Are you a follower of Jesus? That's what Philip Yancey asked Christoph. And Christoph has written about this. He says, and I quote, faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity has become less intellectual and more mystical over time. So scholars, quote unquote, modern theologians, quote unquote, will question the virgin birth more quickly than they will any other biblical truth. Because it is difficult to understand, right? Now, it's not difficult to understand in my simple mind if the Holy Spirit hovered over the beginning of darkness and God spoke life, and I believe he did. Then I also believe God did that in the womb of this virgin girl. And that's how God put on flesh and came into this world. And the virgin birth, just exactly like the resurrection, is a demonstration of God's power and his unlimited intention to bring rebellious sinners home. That's that's what it does. And so from the garden on, that's what we find in Scripture. We saw it in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers, Paul says. You are no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's who we are, church. We are not strangers and aliens. And we have to guard that with all of our being. Because the world would seek to divide. Satan would want to tear asunder that knit, that that thread of grace that God holds together his people. We are not strangers and aliens. The writer of Hebrews said this. By faith, Abraham believed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive in his inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he went to live in a land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. Because it says here he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Later on, it says in verse 13, they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I believe one of the main things that could happen in the life of us as believers in the life of this church to bring about revival is just remembering that we are strangers and exiles on this earth. This is not home. And all this stuff is very, very temporary. Temporary. In chapter 13, verse 14, the writer says, Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So this genealogy, this amazing story, reminds us of God's relentless pursuit of grace and his incredible demonstration of power to bring us home. To fill that longing hole in our heart. So it's not just the story of a baby being born. It's the story of God entering into our exile to bring us out. Let me give you four things just to think on as far as way, by way of application. 
If you're here today or you're listening or watching and you've never trusted in Jesus, the miracle of this miraculous birth can be yours. All right? That's how we're born again. That's how, that's how it happens in us. God speaks and Jesus is born in a, in, in, in a, save, in a saving way. Again, I'll quote Muller. He says it better than I could. The one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the virgin's womb was also conceived by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of Christians. Through the miracle of the gospel, which starts at the virgin birth, God brings forth new life from a thoroughly sinful people. So that's how God did it in me. He spoke life into this stone cold dead heart. And Jesus took up residence there. So I invite you today to, you don't have to understand how all of this happened. I don't. I believe it by faith. And over the years, it's become a little clearer, and the implications of it much more, much more important. But I invite you today to turn your heart to Jesus. Trust Him. And you'll see life coming forth there. To the church... Trust God's power, church. We want to box him up and limit him. Trust the power of God. Later on in that same book of 1 Peter that I read, he tells us that the power of God that raised Christ from the dead actually starts 2 Peter with this. But the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is ours. It's the basis of our hope. No, not our hope. He says it's our living hope. The living hope we have is in the power of God. So trust that power in everything and in every day that we face. Trust that power. And as you trust that power, I believe, like the old chorus that we said, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we we slowly, I mean turtle slowly, Begin to see this is not home. This is not home. And our hearts begin to change in that direction. And the city that is to come becomes the passion of our hearts. So believer, trust the power of God. And as you do, turn your eyes on them, on him. And finally, as a church, I've realized this week. In my own life, I'm not praying enough for God to work that power in the lives of people I know that are unsaved. I mean, we pray for, you know, pray for Joe to come to Jesus. Lord, I'm praying for I'm praying for him to come to Christ. Pray for the power of God to come upon that life so that they see their lostness. And through that power, Christ is born in that life. The Holy Spirit does a work there as he hovered over the dark, as he hovered over Mary. And that Holy Spirit comes and brings about life in the, in, the, in the heart of that person that's lost. And we pray to that end. We go to that end. We give, as we saw a minute ago. And I loved what was in that video. It may be only two or three Muslims that that guy comes to faith. He sees come to faith over the course of years. But in God's timeless eye, those seeds are planted. And a nation is changed. And one day, from every tribe and tongue and nation, 
there will be representatives before the throne. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for this list of names, and we thank you that it's way more than just a list of names. Father, you have announced a curse on everyone who could not fulfill the law, and no one could fulfill it. And yet, Jesus did, and you took the curse that was deserved by lawbreakers and put it on the one who kept that law fully and perfectly. And Lord took the life that was his and offers it to those who trust in him. Father, bring about that miracle of rebirth today in someone's heart. And Father, in the lives of those who have trusted in you and have that life of Jesus in us. Lord, just again, fill our hearts with wonder and awe. I pray it wouldn't be just the angels that are amazed at all this. That we would continue to... Sing of your amazing grace, God. Be blown away by it. And that, Lord, we would just uh, trust in your power. And, Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Grow in our hearts, God, that continuing yearning for your kingdom. And we pray that, Lord, in, in our King's name.